0: Welcome to our special bonus Halloween episode of Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxey. Most historians study the dead, but today's guest studies the people who dispose of the dead. Specifically, the rise of the funeral industry. When did dealing with what remained of Aunt Ethel become something you hired a professional to do instead of keeping it a family affair? It turns out that looking at the business of death, a century and a half ago, can tell us a great deal about life then, too. Fear not, I made sure to ask the important questions, like, how do you prepare a corpse for funeral and burial anyway? I also learned about some excellent sources for Mainers looking to dig into this history themselves, and local institutions can't spell funeral without F-U-N, so let's do this. guest today is Dr. Kelly Brennan Earhart, historian at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Kelly, welcome to Mainly History.
1: I'm thrilled to be here.
0: This has been an interview that I've been looking forward to. Kelly, you and I go way back. We met when we were both researching in Maine back in 2012, and I had never met anybody quite like you. Kelly is like <laughs> if... Morticia Adams from the Adams family had a history PhD and devoted her talents to the education of the public full-time. <laughs> Could you briefly describe what it is you research?
1: Sure. I'm interested in the American funeral industry, particularly in the uh, 19th and into the 20th centuries. Uh, specifically, the whole, my whole dissertation goes 1780 to 1930, so the very long 19th century. I focused specifically on undertakers, who then turned into funeral directors, who then turned into morticians. I am interested in the way that they professionalized. I am interested to see, and I'm also interested in the way that they uh, shaped consumer interests and how consumer interests shaped the business. Uh, my dissertation was called "Men of Sorrow: Markets of Grief: A History of the American Funeral Industry." I have I've written articles for uh, museum catalogs and the like. Uh, recently, there's a, a book in, the, in an anthology, the book was called To Death Do Us Part, Cemeteries as Borders Uncrossed.
0: And that's out in press already?
1: Yeah, it's already out. You can buy it online.
0: Oh, great. Okay. Historians study a lot of random things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why the funeral business?
1: Well, it's one of those things I will say to about everyone who is working on a doctorate is the topic they pick is they are working through something about themselves, whether it's a previous trauma, whether it is a general interest that has sort of dogged them their whole lives. There's always a very personal element, I will say, to at least the doctorate. For subsequent books, it depends. So for me that I found so interesting was the fact that people had very different internal and external responses to something as serious as death. And the thing about it is it teaches you a lot about any given time period. And the reason for this is because grief makes people do weird things. They become anxious, they're fearful, and it brings out a lot of very interesting behaviors in people. And I think it's a collection of behaviors that's really illuminating about people from, like I said, any given time timeline. For me, it's about the, the, the business part, the economic part, the I'm sad and now I'm going to go out and buy fancy coffins and clothes. My interest isn't necessarily the funeral practices but it's about how the business both shaped and was shaped by, community, by consumer demand.
0: So panning back a bit, historians love to periodize. And so how would you periodize the history of burial practices or sort of you know, handling of death in America in, in terms of attitudes towards disposal of the dead?
1: This is actually something historians, there's not a lot of books on death and death ways in America, but the ones that have been written have sort of a, a solid periodization. And it's one that I I agree with. One of the things we talk about periodization and the nature of my work and actually a lot of the work, but not all of the work that's out there is that it is mostly white Protestant. The black experience uh, was very different in certain ways. and I'm hoping to get a chance to touch on that as we go. A lot of the periodization uh, depends on just again, you know, location, ethnic and racial status, socioeconomic status, urban versus rural. And we should
0: add, of course, that there's a, a very diverse indigenous experience as well uh, that point. has warranted some study. But we shouldn't we shouldn't leave it out or, or or lump it in either.
1: No, I appreciate that. For you, thank you, thank you for mentioning that. So the consensus is sort of from European arrival through really the beginning, the you know the very beginning of the 19th century, that this is a community affair. Funerals and death is a community thing, and most things that are purchased are purchased or they're cre- or they're built locally. So this idea of different people, some of them who are tradesmen, some of them who are friends and relatives in some of the, even in bigger spaces like Philadelphia and Boston, they engage in sort of a very local economy and a very local emotional sort cir- of cir- circumstances around this. Now you do see purchases of, from, of course, things from England, but they're usually being, sometimes they're bought through a factor, but usually they're being bought from a local merchant.
0: Before we get into the development of the, the modern Funeral industry, I'm wondering, I think a question that you might get sometimes is before 1900 and the the real development of recognizable modern medicine, death is more common. And so did the ubiquity of death in early America, did it shape practices of of funerals or of of approaches to loss in, in a way that's different than the 20th century and 21st?
1: Certainly. And I think this is true for any of the groups who are living in British North America, whether uh, American Indian, African, or later African American, or European. Part of it just has to do with circumstances. One of the things that I have seen, and it's kind of disturbing, is the idea that, that you need to be able to bury, this is very, very early, this is 17th century, and I've seen this sort of up and down the coast, is you've got to bury the bodies in a way that they won't either be and ended up being desecrated, or they won't end up being eaten, by local local wild animals so what you see for a while is and actually Virginia they legislate this they say that a per and they're really talking about servants which is not a euphemism in the 17th century servants so this is this includes uh, African and African Americans people of indigenous descent Europeans everyone has to be buried within a fenced off area and they need to be buried deep enough that nothing can get to them
0: Did graveyards in the 17th and 18th centuries employ basically animal control people? You know, like, Um, Barney, get the raccoons out of there. They've got (laughs) into the graveyard again.
1: Um, Not if you bury deep enough. And that was the thing they said, you have to bury. And then the law, it was, it has to, it says, you cannot, you have to bury deep enough because if you don't, we know that they're going to dig you up. We know these animals can dig you up. So that whole idea, and this is probably, this probably is true going back, forever. That idea of being, you know, that a concept of six feet under makes sense because there's always that possibility that some, you know, some creature can come along, dig it up and kind of drag you off.
0: I hadn't thought of that. Oh, for the six feet under. I mean, that's so... not
1: exactly what it is, but it is, it is a contributing factor, right? Especially when you live in circumstances that are incredibly rural. That or makes sense. you live with a circumstance where you, you know, where you live among, you know, people living more amongst the land or whatever it may be. But yeah, if you're gonna bury somebody, you gotta bury them pretty deep. Makes sense. So not a thing I thought I'd end up talking about. But <laughs> go on. When does the funeral
0: industry become a business? And what events trigger this development?
1: There's a few things. And different scholars will point to different time periods. Some say it's it's after the Civil War. I will point to actually the period sort of the 40s and 1840s and 1850s before the Civil War. This is when you're really beginning to see cabinet makers in particular begin to specialize, especially in big cities. Uh, I know in, say, Philadelphia, and I bring Philadelphia up over and over again because it was such a huge city in the 18th century. You're beginning to see what they refer to themselves as furnishing undertakers. Because in the period before that, an undertaker was basically used as a term to describe what we would call now a building contractor. So they start uh, saying furnishing undertakers to demonstrate that they are something different. And they, get, they actually get their term from English undertakers. So it's not like they came up with the idea of undertaker, but they came up with the idea of furnishing undertaker to kind of set them apart. And what you begin to see is as they specialize, you know, it's one thing when they start and they're building, you know, they build coffins for people. And then it's like, okay, now I got a hearse. <laughs> now I've got someone who actually, quote, who they say in attendance, basically is there to facilitate the funeral, the whole thing. They kind of are the ones who, who run the show because the funerals are beginning to get bigger because they're trying to provide the customer with what they want. And as they are able to provide more and more services, the customer demand goes up. Now, granted, they are also pushing things on the customer. So it's sort of a symbiotic relationship that begins to create this The industry, these businesses in the, I would say, in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s.
0: Okay. So a modern audience, if they went back in time uh, and and were at a sort of an earlier funeral from the 1840s or 50s, was there anything going on that would surprise a modern audience?
1: Hmm. I think more than, actually, one of the things that actually often surprises people, and this is true, is a similarity across location, particularly with white Protestants, is they wait sort of a requisite two days to burial. They do that when it's cold in Maine, they do it when it's brutal in South Carolina, it's roughly about two days to get everything organized. And that stands true for a long period of time. So I think one of the things that would surprise them, one, that regionally they're doing something similar about the same amount of time, and two, that they do it so fast. Not that it would surprise them, because remember they're not using sort of sophisticated um, preservation methods right of course but i think i think that would be something that would surprise people also there's a lot of swag um which is true early and as time goes on gloves hat bands scarves particularly to people who are serving as pallbearers and the scarves are not the way we think of scarves they kind of look like crossing guard sashes when they wear them yeah it looks really different (laughs) so they are technically they refer to them as scarves but they look like crossing guard
0: I remember encountering fulminations from the the 18th century in in, in Massachusetts from moralizers who talked about, oh, it's it's disgraceful how funerals are getting too gaudy and people are spending too much on these expensive gloves and these expensive, this expensive swag.
1: Yes, and that complaint, as you said, starts early. And the thing is, it's not just a complaint in Massachusetts. I know they're always complaining to make things, you know, simpler and better, right. you know, through the 17th and 18th century. But you see this complaint in newspapers up and down British North America. I think the furthest south I've seen it is North Carolina. And they don't usually get all bent out of shape about the cost of things. Interesting. Uh, at, least the, at least the planner class, of course, doesn't get worked out, too worked up about the cost of things. But you see it everywhere. This is a common critique. And we're early in that process. One of the things people seem to like to do in moments of grief, grief is purchase, is buy. There seems to be this, throughout you know, the 18th, you know, the 17th, 18th, 19th century, 20, 20th, 21st, there's sort of this feeling of, to remember the person I need to purchase or use as much physical material as humanly possible. And that just picks up over time.
0: Now, did these funeral services include purchasing mourners because certainly in other cultures around the world, uh, wealthy people would sometimes pay to have, you know, especially weeping young women at a, at a, at a mm-hmm. burial ritual, right? And so yeah. did, did this pop up in, at any, in any of the communities that you studied?
1: Uh, I noticed when someone, it was, I saw it until about the early, actually until about the late 18th century, actually. Um, and it was always people who were really important for example, the governor of Virginia dies in 1770, and the procession is published in the newspaper. They go through who stood where, which is fascinating and very helpful. But they talk about two, having two mutes, two mute mourners, sort of out in front of everything else. But for the most part, I have seen very little references, or very few references, should I say, to, to the, you know, paying for mourners they still want you to pay for stuff. There's other things you can pay for. So it becomes kind of common over time is the idea of these rented carriages in which people travel, but you got to rent a whole bunch of them, right? If you've got a big enough crew and there's of course a pecking order as to who goes into which carriage. So it's one of those things that it's almost like they swap that out in terms of the way that they think of and the way that they set up their um, processions.
0: Moving to religion. Religious difference seems like something that would affect this business of of grief. And one example from the 17th century is certainly the the Puritans were, were famously skeptical of long, elaborate, really extravagant displays of grief. The idea being that since God plans all of our lives for us, nobody's death is an accident. And so you're not supposed to go too far in questioning God's will by suggesting Mm -hmm. that the death of your loved one was a mistake. And that certainly impacted their funeral procedures for the the first century or so of colonization. But in terms of other religious differences, do you find the business practices being different between say Protestants and Catholics or, or Jewish communities, for example?
1: There are differences, of course, that are of course, they're immediately related to the faith, right? The nature of Jewish headstones, is you know it's tied to sort of what are they kind of sort of conveying about their religious beliefs as well you see the funny thing is with with really whites both catholic and protestant in terms of their purchasing power especially as you move through the 19th century they buy the same kind of stuff huh. there is a guy in kentucky who had a hookup with the the irish benevolent society and he sold them the same stuff that he sold Episcopalians, the same stuff he sold Methodists. This, you get the idea. Now, granted, there are some variations. One of the things in the Catholic example is that there are portable prayer rails that you can rent. Ah. So that's, some, you know what I mean? So, so there are, like I said, like, there's these, there are these very specific things that are tied to faith in terms of purchase. And then, of course, there's other, of course, then there's the ritualistic elements, of course, tied to to religion and belief, that they're not outside the realm of the funeral, but they're outside of sort of the realm of purchase.
0: Did the business of funerals end up making Americans more ecumenical or pluralistic, at least through this, this business lens, in the sense of, you said, most of the, most of the undertakers you studied were, were white Protestants. Did you find them catering to people of all faiths and, and, and races and backgrounds? or was there separation in this business of of death as well?
1: There is a separation, but there's some really interesting examples of how they work together, even though they're separate. And the biggest, and I think best example of this has to do with African-American and white undertakers in the the American South, in Richmond specifically. And what happens is there is a uh, African-American... I guess by this point you call him a funeral director. Funeral director who was like the big guy on the block. He was huge. He had every kind of equipment you could need, and there were other. And then there were big white ones as well. But the thing was, in many instances, it became easier for them to borrow each other's equipment, sell each other caskets, use each other's carriages, use each other's hearses on occasion, because it was in part. It was just because it was convenient, right? They, if you know that the. The the guy up the street from you has the thing you need. You're going to buy it from him. And at some point he's probably going to come over and say, hey, I need this other piece of equipment. You know what I mean? The thing that makes it sort of amazing is the fact that you're in Richmond, Virginia, which was the capital of the Confederacy. Jim Crow is going very strong because the period I'm talking about is 1890s, 1900, 1910 or so.
0: Okay. You
1: know, big period in Jim Crow history. And these guys are, are swapping stuff left and right. But they're not, obviously they're not advertising this because it would upset, well, the white clients in particular. Uh-huh. So it's sort of this thing where like, it's after, it's after death, but, this is, but they're doing what they want, what the customer wants. And the thing is, they all understand that because they're all, in that sense, they are all in the same game. And the thing is, for the most part, it's really interesting when it comes to African-American funeral directors, when you get into that 1890s, 1900s, 19-teens, is in 1882, there's an organization created called the National Funeral Directors Association. And initially, they let in people of color, women and people of color. And they go, to the con- they go to their conferences and they meet each other and they all talk to each other. And it's a fairly ecumenical setup uh, until 1912, where African-American and other people of color are kicked out of the organization. Now, they are part of the organization in the 20th, 20th and 21st century. I don't want you to think that this is, they still exist, but that is not the way they operate. So that idea of sort of working together, working in the same space is something that happened, but there are very specific circumstances circumstances that surround, especially this sort of very early period where they seem to work together.
0: You mentioned this association in the 1880s. This is a good segue to talk about the professionalization of the trade, and there's other mm-hmm. trades that are increasingly professionalizing in the 19th century, thinking about doctors, and certainly, you know, elite educated men uh, edging out midwives and other folks. When do undertakers form associations with certifications and, and sort of more rigorous standards of belonging and uniform standards of practice?
1: That's a great question, because you're right. There's a number of other ones that are professionalizing around the same time. And actually, funeral directors, which is really when we're talking about late 19th century, that's what they go by, funeral directors. They actually liken themselves to doctors very often in terms of, you know, what they do, how it's scientifically based, and you have to be trained, and they, I mean, they use, and that they're respected, which is sort of an interesting language that they grab onto, because the thing is, these poor these poor funeral directors are not respected, so they try to tie themselves to this, or, you know, to this group that is. They also liken themselves to architects, and I think it's because it's one of the Professions that's in the process of professionalizing, and that sort of what they're doing is innovative. So they use that kind of language too. What you begin to see after the Civil War is this sort of slow desire to basically say, "We gotta, we gotta professionalize. We gotta demonstrate to the public our worth." So you begin to see, you begin to see trade or um, trade organs, so trade newsletters coming out. In I think the first one's like 1876. Uh, then we move forward. You get them in. And then you get 1882 when the National Funeral Directors Association is created. Then you get these really fancy, very elaborate trade organs. These these um, journals, uh, which had great names. Uh, one was called the Casket. Yes. One was called Sunnyside, and one <laughs> was called Shady Side. Eventually, Casket and Sunnyside merged, and they they called themselves the Casket and Sunnyside which is sort of a really funny juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it demonstrates a lot about how they think about themselves, right? So what begins to happen is through that time period, you get into the 1890s, you have states that begin to require, they now granted this is because NFDA and other groups begin to lobby the state saying, look, we, we need to professionalize this. We need, we need certifications. The state agrees, but the state also makes, makes a requirement. They say that they can no longer use arsenic in their, in their um, fluids. And the reason for this is because it, quote, it makes it unclear whether or not someone had been poisoned, which is not true. <laughs> so they switched to formaldehyde at that time. But the thing is, they also need to demonstrate mastery. Um, and what mastery looks like, gets more and more complicated as, as sort of you move into the, from the 18th century, uh, 19th century into the 20th century. They have textbooks, I have a collection of embalming textbooks from that time period. I am almost convinced I can embalm a 19th century body using 19th century probably not 19th century body a dead body is it (laughs) basically the same as taxidermy no
0: oh no well this shows what i know i've shown my ignorance for disposal of corpses
1: (laughs) but that's not a bad question because it's an you know what i mean it's a natural question in the sense of well how do they actually do it right it's (laughs) yeah
0: so we'll get to that in a second because clearly the audience will want to know how to properly prepare a body (laughs) Uh, but you mentioned the the names of the casket at Sunnyside, so did the funeral business have how were they viewed by the late 19th century? Was there kind of like a morbid cachet to them then or or how did how did they view themselves and how did people view them
1: Well, they viewed themselves as professionals as true professionals, and the thing was they really were becoming true professionals. everybody else wasn 't as crazy about. Them. <laughs> And this is a problem that dogs them from the beginning, right? It's what kind of person makes their money doing this is sort of the public's attitude over and over again. Even every time they offer the public something that they end up loving, the, you know, the, the question remains, can, we, you know, can you really trust somebody who's like this? You know, quote unquote, like this. And the thing is, there's two tropes for undertakers in the sort of early 19th century. Actually, going forward was there's the fat jolly Undertaker, <laughs> who is sort of indifferent to your grief. And then there's the tall, <laughs> and then there's the tall, skinny Undertaker, who's maudlin, but it's, a, but it's clearly a act. That's how people kind of think of them in the 19th century. The tall so, skinny
0: one seems familiar, like that, the sort of ghoulish funeral director who, it's almost like Dracula without the fangs, you know, where he glides yeah. <laughs> in and like, welcome to the quiet gravestone, we're here to meet your needs. You know, like that
1: that seems
0: <laughs> yeah. resonant from sort of more, more popular depictions more recently. But the Fat yeah. Jolly one, I hadn't heard of. It's like Santa for funerals or something.
1: Basically, yeah, He oh. and he's sort of funny. And it's funny that that comes up. And he it comes up a lot actually in like, what we consider prestigious newspapers. It comes up in sort of the high-end newspapers, late 19th century in New York, in Boston, uh, you see it occasionally in Chicago. Um, and he comes up because it's the whole like, oh, you're, you're enjoying making money of us, hence the fat part.
0: The oh. funny thing is,
1: because he's fat and he's jolly, right? <laughs> That's how they make their money. And the funny thing is, most of the, you know, sort of front-facing funeral directors I've ever met, they're not fat necessarily, fat or jolly, but they have these great personalities. So I think what they're actually pointing to is the fact that most of the people who work in the, who work in the trade, I mean, today they have these pot like these very pleasant personalities. So the fact that he's pleasant is something one that is law has a long tradition of actually. You see these very sweet entrants in these sort of very early ledgers where people talk about giving, you know, sharing apples with children and having to put their poor, their poor horse to pasture. You can tell that they're very kind of kindly sympathetic people from things that they, from the, you know, even the 1820s, 30s and 40s. So the fact that he exists, some of it is rooted in a truth, right? That idea that he's going to be likable, which apparently is disgusting and wrong, <laughs> but seems to be a natural part, not for everybody, of course, in, in the trade. But for a lot of people right uh, one of the things that you hear over and over again and you hear this in the you hear it in the 8th 19th century and 20th and now is the people who go into the field they do it because they like to help people and i think that's something that we don't really ever talk about is that really the purposes and they say this like for not only decades but for centuries i want to help people that's the reason i do this this is the reason why it matters so when it comes back to that trope like i said there's some reality to it i think the very grim undertaker is just what you'd expect, right? I mean, I think that people have this expectation, like you said, of the very ghoulish, ghoulish guy. And it comes from that question, what kind of person would make their money this way? Now you talked
0: about the undertakers helping people and also professionalization. I'm curious, were they much like doctors were driving out, often we should add, male doctors were driving out female midwives, were the professional undertakers by 1850? Were they lobbying or trying to drive out certain other competition? Were they Were there people still burying grandpa out in the yard? Uh, was there some other rival to their business?
1: So it's sort of interesting. I'm going to start with the grandpa in the yard. People still bury grandpa in the yard. Okay, that part has never gone away. It's not what we see or think about, but it's never gone away. Um, that's Probably the first thing I want to say, I also want to mention the fact that they're called these, these death professionals or have different names at different times. So when you talk sort of before the civil war, before about the 1870s, they're referred to as undertakers. Everyone calls them undertakers. And as the 19th century progresses, they hate being called undertakers. (laughs) So they begin to switch to the term, they switch to the phrase funeral director, which, you know, makes sense. Um, And then what you begin to see starting in the early 20th century is the use of the word mortician in an effort to demonstrate mastery of embalming. The first time the word's used is in a trade organ that's called the embalmer. You know what I mean? So this is another opportunity. Now, granted, not all funeral directors are necessarily embalming, but it's another word to demonstrate that they're professionals. Of course, this is late, you know, late 19th, this is actually early 20th century is when that actually happens. When it comes to sort of that idea of forcing women out of traditional work, it's sort of the thing that everybody, thinks about when it comes to this uh, very communal process, right? The idea that the community is doing it. So the wife or another female member of the family is doing it. And that actually adds to the whole, what kind of person, what kind of man makes his money this way? Um, uh. The fact that men come in and start doing certain things for the most part early, you're still seeing female members of the household like washing and shaving and dressing, but not always dressing. Um, especially when you're talking about men, it's not, uh, men. Some usually were dressed by another man. Part of that has to do with size, right? It's probably easier for a man to manipulate a male corpse. The The idea of someone's making the shroud and all these things, but there are elements of this that get professionalized by women somewhat early. So you see at the very end of the 18th century in Philadelphia, you see this example of these women who are being paid to make shrouds and to wash and shave people, men really. But I mean, wash and dress women, wash and shave men. They're charging for it. So clearly there is there is a customer base who don't wanna do it themselves anymore.
0: And you mentioned, uh, and so this is good to remind us that despite the sort of gendering of the funeral director as male, there were women who were undertakers and funeral directors. Then.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, there are women working in this trade now, some of them are doing things like shroud making or washing and shaving, and they're being paid for it um, as we get, begin to move into the, da- the days of the undertaker. But the group that you see most often sort of, w- well, you see female under- undertakers and then female funeral directors, of course. And they actually go out of their way in like trade journal stuff to talk about the fact that you know, there are women in the trade, they're doing a great job, that kind of thing. They're very boostery when we get to like the 18- 1870s, which is sort of interesting.
0: Now I have a question that... I know many people are curious about. What happens in say 1890, when the family takes grandpa to the funeral home, what do these funeral directors do with their modern professional techniques to prepare (laughs) a body?
1: Actually what they do is quite sophisticated. And the other thing too, in the 1890s, you may or may not be going to a funeral home. The um, embalmer, funeral slash funeral director, might be actually doing the work within the home. And when they do this kind of work, they talk about in in textbooks, they're doing it in the house, what you need, what the, what the funeral director needs to look like when they're in the physical space with, you know, just sort of very curious family members. So they talk about the fact that they should never be seen in shirt sleeves. They should always have their coat on, which is a fairly common way of thinking for other types of professionals as well. Um, so they're supposed to be in their coats there are these people who are watching them they say never like basically they say never show fear and never make it look like you're screwing up because they will jump on you but the thing is they say you got to know yourself if you're going to do it in front of other people you need to know what you're doing
0: have so, you found any reports of complaints against undertakers where you know somebody somebody comes to the home and and is dealing with. Uh, with Uncle, Uncle Brendan and his body, <laughs> and they're going like, oh, gross, what happened over
1: here? <laughs> I mean, there are complaints, but the complaints usually aren't about what they're doing, because what they're doing isn't invasive by that time. They will complain about how the person looks. Occasionally, you huh. get these complaints of, uh, you get the complaint a lot of they're the wrong color. Um, and the, one of the biggest challenges for African-American funeral directors during the period, yeah, during this period is that it's hard to find makeup um, and techniques that are going to preserve, you know, the true color of the corpse's skin. So that's a big problem they have for a long time. And then eventually there are these really great companies that begin to pop up that make, particularly makeups um, and other chemicals for an African-American customer base. So that is sort of, that's part of it. But the biggest complaint usually is they don't look like themselves and you still hear that complaint sometimes. They don't look like themselves. They're, they're a weird color or their hair's wrong, or why are they wearing, you know, blue eyeshadow or whatever it may be. Oh, okay. That's a bigger, that's a bigger complaint than anything else. In terms of what they're actually doing, if they bring them to the funeral home, um, they're gonna wash and they're gonna shave. Now they're gonna shave their entire face and they're gonna shave women's faces too. Uh, because the face gets frowsy when you put the makeup on. When I say makeup, these are caustic chemicals, these are not makeup that' you going by now yeah it's not like regular makeup it's it's intense <laughs> this stuff is kind of scary uh, it's better now but it was really scary in the 19th, 19th early 20th centuries so they do all that kind of cosmetic stuff but they would begin the process of embalming and the way that they're doing it by that time period like I said it's pretty pretty sophisticated they're going in through the femoral artery in the uh, thigh, uh, or they are going in through the um, radial, no, the brachial in the arm, or the, ra- the radial for small children, uh, which is in the forearm. Okay. And basically, that's the process by which they begin to introduce. Now, when they're introducing this fluid, they got to be really careful and to make sure that they're doing it in a way that's not going to create any, create any kind of explosion. Sometimes you <laughs> have, Yeah. Because sometimes they actually, they talk about how you have to, like, what they call tapping the heart. And drawing actually blood out of the heart because if there's depending on what you know where the heart was exactly when it was beating, it may be full of blood. And the last thing you need is for go through the system all the way to the heart and the heart explode, uh, which apparently did happen sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you go, oh man. So um, they're very very careful. Um, one of the things early, they, so they do this, they introduce it to the circulatory system. What you'll also see is that they start, they inject fluid into the stomach cavity. Um, or so I should say basically the soft spots between your, your armpits and your hips basically.
0: Now are all the Um, organs still inside?
1: Yes. Unless there was an autopsy done. Yes. Okay. Um, for the most part, they don't remove, if they can help it, they don't remove anything. There are times where they kind of have to, if there's been a horrible, horrible accident, but they really don't want to do that. So they kind of go in and they do it sort of, they kind of fill the cat, the, you know, that cavity with fluid very often. They have a way of getting into the, into the face and the head. Um, mm. There is a huge, oh, this is a great growth story. Can I tell it? Please do. Okay. So in the 17th, no, 1870s, I should I apologize. There was an incident where there were two people, two guys, who, demon, who created two different ways of embalming the head. One guy said the way we should go is actually through the back of the neck um, sort of, if you feel where your spine is, sort of move over until there's that little little space, and you kind of put your head up. I don't know if you can feel it, but that's where it was. They wow. said you should go through go through there to do that to do the the head. This other guy says no 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 no, it needs to go through the eye. Uh. It needs to go. <laughs> it needs to go straight into the corner, the the inside corner of the eye. And they 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 kind of like at each other in the, in their, in the trade press for a little while. And then finally someone says, that's it. We're having a competition. We're going to see what happens. So they take a severed head and they, they put it on a table and then they hook bottles up to, you know, the, 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 to the, you know, the main arteries and the veins. Right. Right. So those are coming out of the head and bottles. So basically it's to see how much fluid gets through and they each, Actually, there's two severed heads. One does one, one does the other. To see which one was the more effective way of doing it. Uh, fortunately, the uh, through the neck thing was more effective. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they're, like, they're in the process of creating new techniques. And everybody points to the civil. I have to say this because it makes me nuts. Everyone says, oh, the civil war. That's the real beginning of everything. And the thing is, it's true. Uh, it creates a tension uh, throughout the country that this is happening. The thing is, the guys who are these pioneers are not the ones who are, most of, most of the guys who aren't pioneers, aren't the ones that are you know ghoulishly following the army. They're guys who are actually serving both Confederate and Union, often in a medical corps. So they come out of the war and they basically they go into this field. So everyone says, oh, it's, it's, it's the Civil War. It's all the Civil War. And the answer is not, not for what we know of, not for what is created that we know of today.
0: I love that you are a 19th century historian who hates talking about the civil war. And you totally, you totally preempted my question because I was going to say you hate the civil war. So what impact did the civil war have? (laughs) So thank you for that. So that's good. But that's another good segue here. So you're talking Mm -hmm. about the medical field and some of these other businesses. So you mentioned murder. Is there overlap or migration from the, the undertaker slash funeral director business to that of coroner mm-hmm. and eventually like, you know, sort of medical examiner in crime scenes?
1: The answer is yes. And the funny thing is it starts sort of very simply in most places, actually everywhere, even in big cities. for When they first start sort of hit upon this idea, now they've had coroners for a long, long time. And usually they pick some, well, one, they usually just picked like an important guy that everybody knew. That was the way it actually worked through like the 18th and much of the 19th century. Um, you get a little later and you begin to see more doctors who serve in that capacity as a coroner because they have medical expertise. And as you move through that period, there's a sort of an overlap with the doctors and the funeral director. Really, by that point, they're usually, they're usually later, so it's funeral directors. Sometimes it's earlier and undertakers. Um, and they become it too. And this happens in a lot of places, it's not everywhere and it's not all the time. You do see these guys begin to make this transition um, from being a funeral director into being a coroner. So then you begin to see these guys who you know had around been or what would year have been would that be? Um, out in the eighteen seventies, it's happening on the regular. Okay. Uh, actually, in some places, really rural places, sometimes they make the undertaker the guy like in the eighteen fifties. It just depends. <laughs> but the answer is yes. There's a very strong connection. Because that field is growing, there are things that I imagine were maddening <laughs> to a coroner, to the coroner, funeral director, uh, about the shape of a you know the shape of a body, and you know what I mean. Like they can look at you know certain things about a body and say, okay, I know what happened. And like, like I said, they outlawed arsenic, starting right. starting about 18, 1904, I think is when it starts and they're outlining arsenic, but before that, the reason is because they can't tell whether or not the person had been poisoned. The answer is that's not true. And the coroners (laughs) knew this, and the (laughs) brainer directors knew this, because what happens is when you poison someone with arsenic, it's gonna damage living tissue, right? It kills them. If you introduce an arsenical fluid after they're died, it, it doesn't do anything to the tissue because the tissue is dead. You know what I mean? It doesn't inflame tissue, it begins to preserve tissue. And for whatever reason, the American public just had a really hard time with this. Legislators had a hard time with this. So that's why you see that change.
0: That is a dumb popular outrage that I was not aware of. Yeah, American right. In history, so thank you. <laughs> that's great, that's great. <laughs> so you did a good deal of your research for your projects in New England and, and Maine. And that's in fact yep. where we met at the Maine Historical Society. And so folks who are able to go to the Maine Historical Society and and look at at sources from this field, what were some of the sources that you
1: found? I found some really fantastic stuff. Um, I'll talk about the stuff that was probably most significant, and I'm going to talk about the funniest thing I found as well. Oh, good. Uh, (laughs) So the stuff that I found was the Marble Works collections, in terms of who was making these stones, how they were making, what the orders were, how much did it cost, and they did a Fabulous job keeping records. Uh, so, Skowhegan, I don't know if I'm saying that right, um, Marble Works, is that right?
0: Yep, Skowhegan.
1: Skowhegan uh, Marble Works, their stuff. There is a guy in Maine who had the patent for the first granite, big time granite polisher, which sounds like something you wouldn't really need or like it was a big deal, but smooth mm-hmm. headstone, granite headstones come in kind of late because it is a pain to carve and smooth granite if you don't have heavy duty tools. And this guy developed really the first heavy duty tool to do that. So that was cool. Oh. And then like you can see his heavy, um, basically it's the patent print of how it would work. And it was so cool. Huh. I wrote a really great um, funeral, uh, I should say Undertaker, later funeral director, ledger books. Okay. I've seen a lot of ledger books, but some, some of the most helpful were, were actually at Maine Historical. Ah, so um, what
0: were some of these, these major firms or, or people that you looked at?
1: I don't have that list in front of
0: oh, me. Oh, that's okay. So. <laughs> that's okay. Um,
1: the cool thing is that, I mean, that's an easy search. Like I remember yeah. on, the, on their system. But I will say my favorite thing, which is related to Undertaken. Um, and actually, this is another example of something that was a fantastic set of ledger books. So it's called just Manuscript 1865 to 1897. And it is, that's all it's called in the system. And the first two volumes are very good, very detailed, very interesting, but pretty standard in the way they're structured. Funeral director, undertaker account books, like the other ones I looked at. Uh, The third volume gets interesting because the third volume is the diary of the wife of the undertaker. It's nice. just like, whoa. So it was great because I could see a set like how to kind of a little bit about like, you know, what was her role in all of this? Yeah. And her role was really interesting. You, she didn't really usually go on calls to pick up bodies, but occasionally she did. Her biggest assignment was, you know, the washing, the dressing, the makeup, the hair. She was also in charge of providing flowers for the funeral, hmm. which I thought was really interesting. So she's doing very traditional female work, which is pretty common this is 1897 It's pretty common through this, you know, earlier and through this period that women do sort of what is traditionally thought of as women's work, especially to, to women's bodies. Right. Earlier, if, if a woman washed a man's body, you're talking 18th century, it's not not a huge deal. Um, Of course, by the late 19th century, it's a scandal almost. So women, you know, women do women, men do men. And the thing about this woman, she's very fussy. Okay. Very fussy and she of course Maine is a dry state so she does not drink she's also a Christian scientist and her, her husband Undertaker apparently is like out of control he goes to Boston all the time to drink he comes back drunk he goes to like part of it is I can't tell if he really does have a drinking part problem or if he hates her and that's not, that shouldn't be a joke Really, it's not, but I really couldn't figure out. I was really trying to get a sense of, like is, is, there, is, there, is, he, is something you know, wrong in his situation? Right. Or is she just a pain? Because she, she talks about how she prays all the time and she brought it up. She also refers to him as Papa. It's her uh, husband.
0: Uh, yeah, uh-huh.
1: Very 19th century. So, she's, like, so she's, trying to, she's always trying to convert him. And his answer always <laughs> is the same. He's like, I'm not interested. So it's interesting to see from a religious perspective, the idea that she has you know, this very strong faith and he does not. It's interesting to see the you know the dynamics of a family. Uh, Though the best thing that he manages to do is he goes to Boston, he buys a punch bowl, and he brings it back. Which of course, (laughs) so past (laughs) aggressive. Yeah. So she and he puts it apparently on like the kitchen table. So he puts it out for her to see, and she's (laughs) so annoyed. She's so annoyed, and then she says, "No, it's a wicked thing to have." And she goes this whole thing. She goes, "But it's really pretty." one of those things that if you're a scholar and you're interested in, you know, the whole host of things I just you know mentioned, religion, family dynamics, whatever it may be, it's also useful. So it's one of those things yeah. I got something out of it, but I know other scholars can get something out of it as well. And the cool thing is it's in, it's in the system. You can look it up. Uh, and if you go, you could probably look at it too.
0: That's great. Well, and right, that's one of the fun things about history too, right, is that there's all these esoteric sources that are very that have very different uses for different for different interests, right? In different people. Yep. And yeah. so you mentioned the the granite carvers, you mentioned the ledgers in this diary. Were there are there any other material sources that the funeral industry left behind that's in Maine Historical Society and other institutions like it?
1: I'm trying to think what they I'm trying to think that a, a Maine historical society, honestly there Document, the documentary stuff is so rich there really isn't very much that I can think of at least that's there now in a similar uh, instance there are other you know other historical societies and the like was that the Connecticut Historical Society they have a corpse preserver oh like a 18... whole
0: material yeah, whole physical
1: thing. yep the physical whole thing it's from uh, 1876 and they showed it to me um, they would not let me get in it I remember you summer. were really
0: excited about this
1: <laughs> yeah I was really excited about this there are other, it's actually pretty common to find, actually in Maine, I don't remember where it is now. Oh goodness. There was basically, there was this barn that had all of this ancient funeral stuff. Like her, there was a hearse, there might've been two hearses. There were caskets. It was unbelievable, but I don't remember where it was. And I had, I also had- That's a something right we can ask the audience.
0: It. That's something we oh, can because ask the audience. If you oh, know the location say. of the funeral <laughs> barn, Main, <laughs> contact Let us, us at Mainly History, and you will will be eternally grateful.
1: Yes, eternally. And I will say, like it was just absolutely gorgeous. Stuff is in rough shape. It's hard. It is hard to keep this stuff preserved. I appreciate it every time I go to actually, and I do research at embalming supply companies. They have collections of stuff, and are probably the most common. The most common thing that you'll see, and everyone's like, "Oh, we have one of these." Is a fist metallic burial case. Um, which basically is this super creepy-looking sarcophagus thing that's made out of iron? I think it's mostly iron. Oh.
0: Um,
1: that were not very popular. They only sold for a few years, and people are always proud when they have one because it's like yes, they were made, and no one wanted them. So, <laughs> so they kind of show up at like in at various types of institutions. <laughs> They're always very proud of them, and I'm always like, uh, yeah, you and everybody else. <laughs> not to denigrate people's whole uh, collections. <laughs>
0: Of course, of course. Final two questions for you, right? First off, what are you up to these days that you are excited about?
1: So these days I work uh, for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, as mentioned earlier. Um, I don't get as much time to work on this topic as I used to, which is a bummer, but doing all kinds of other types of projects. But I will say on October 14th, on Colonial Williamsburg's Facebook live stream, Uh, I am talking about death in the 18th century. Um, So that's a really great opportunity if you wanna know more and it's very specialized. It's just 18th century.
0: Now, will Um, you be in period attire?
1: No, no. (laughs)
0: Okay, that's too bad because you
1: said you're such a, you were an
0: ace at the ghost tales and some of those other things as an an interpreter.
1: I, I was, but I'm a historian now and I get to wear Modern people clothes. Or is what we call it, Colonial Williamsburg civvies. What you mean is you have to
0: wear modern people clothes.
1: (laughs) Are you doing an air quote?
0: Yes, yes I am. (laughs) Yes I am.
1: Uh, I have a name tag on so you'll remember my name.
0: Okay, excellent. Okay, so that's good. So we'll be on the lookout for that. And then what is something that somebody else is up to that you are excited about and think the audience should look into?
1: This is sort of a strange thing and it's not scholarship. This is a weird thing to plug, but I think it's really important. If you are the type of person who does not want to have a huge, fancy, expensive funeral, there are people, there are funeral homes that do green funerals. They do; um, they're involved as much or as little as you'd like. Um, so it's one of those things. The once again, the um, trade is adapting. Um, I would also suggest, and this is for me, is a big one: is if you if you like once again don't want to pay for that's the point a plot or a stone. Well, you have to pay for. No, for a spot. is to go to one of these and they're called body farms. Hmm. And essentially what you do, you're donating your body to science. Um, but instead of it to a med school, you're, you're donating it to forensic science. So basically what they do with the bodies, they're doing research. So you have F, you know, the FBI and scholars who are doing research on you know, what happens to a body when it decomposes under certain circumstances. So the thing is, your body's not going to be treated in a way, in a traditional way. I mean, it's one of those, you may end up in a suitcase, you know, in a, a, you know, warm space, you may be buried in a certain, you know, weird place or upside down or whatever, but it's, but it's to help other people, right? It's to solve crimes. And this to me is one of the things that is sort of so special and a great opportunity. If you're one of these people of, I don't care, I don't care what happens. I don't care. And the cool thing is at the end of all of this, when they're sort of done with the type of research that, that they're doing you know, on, on the, in, out in the field, your skeleton becomes part of an archeological collection, um, which they also use for study. So if you have, feel the need to either be very, very useful after death, or you <laughs> don't want a lot of fuss, <laughs> green funerals and green cemeteries are probably your way to go. Um, there are two green cemeteries in Maine that I know of. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that is an option within Maine, um, as it is in a lot of the other, a lot of other states. Almost every state now.
0: Huh. Well, this this recommendation did not disappoint.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad.
0: <laughs> so, I I thank you for that recommendation, <laughs> and for the interview. Thanks for joining us on Mainly History, and hopefully we'll have you back again soon.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
0: That's our show. We'll be back November 1st with our final voting-themed episode for the year. Gideon Cohen Postar will join us to discuss how a contested House election, centered in Portland, put Maine front and center as workers fought for the secret ballot in the late 19th century. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Mainly History so you don't miss a thing. Even though you have the right to vote in secret, We love you publicly. Happy Halloween.